I hope you've been enjoying the distribution. I want to hear from you. Please go to the link in the show description to provide your feedback on the topics and guests you would like to hear from. I appreciate your time and hope to keep giving you more of the conversations you enjoy. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Michael Phillips, a principal and the president of Jamestown, a global design-focused real estate investment and management firm with a 40-year track record. During his tenure as president, Jamestown has grown its portfolio of assets in key markets through the United States and expanded its investment footprint to South America and Europe, more than tripling the firm's assets under management. Michael is the driving force behind the company's adaptive reuse projects, including Chelsea Market in New York City, Pont City Market in Atlanta, Industry City in Brooklyn, and Ghirardelli Square in San Francisco. In our conversation, we talk about making real estate more accessible and interactive, reinforcing the human connection to a physical place, Web3, and why Jamestown decided to invest in Timberland more than a decade ago. Let's get into it. Michael, great to see you. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, same to you, Brent. I like to start off all these podcast episodes by asking my guests to introduce themselves. So if you could share a little bit of background on yourself and Jamestown to orient us, that would be great. Sure. So Michael Phillips, president and principal of Jamestown Properties. We're a 40-year-old company that's been operating in the investment management space between Europe and the U.S. We specialize in adaptive reuse, but have a variety of different fund products and investment vehicles that focus on things such as multifamily or timber or office retail specifically. Awesome. And you know, before, t- talk to me a little bit about how, how you got involved with Jamestown. I know you've been at the helm for, for quite a while, but you know, you're you're kind of widely known and respected in the in the industry as a leading placemaker. But what's the how did you get into real estate development as a as a career or profession originally? Sure. So I mean I, I started really quite young, my first real estate project at twenty-two, and really adaptive reuse of, of industrial warehouse products. And that that led to a variety of successes in that space. And Jamestown and I were co-investors in a project together. And as 2008 sort of happened in the great financial crisis, there was a need for Jamestown to build a truly vertically integrated machine in-house. And I joined the team and came on board to build that team. And so we've had, you know, a, a... a dynamic period. We're, we're probably in another one of those dynamic periods again, right? And so, as we as we face it, you know, we, we feel good about the skill set we have. Awesome. Before we dive into you know, some of the details around, you know, what is adaptive reuse? If we zoom out, you know, my first interaction with you and introduction to you and the work Jameson was doing was when I was with the Urban Land Institute, and ULI really focuses on cities and placemaking in the built environment. What is your kind of thesis or macro take on, you know, what what does the built environment kind of represent to you? How do you look at cities and the urban fabric? I know it's a super broad question, but I want to try to orient our listeners to how you think about placemaking holistically. Well, you know, I guess I would start by saying it's all subjective, right? It all is in the eye of the beholder. And I think 
the for us or for me, I would say in particular, the built environment is is there to house humans and human interactions and work processes and leisure processes that we you know engage in. So the idea that you create places that are desirable and that can look a lot of different ways. Our our fathers and mothers' generation of that look like you know very much iconic buildings that had a sense of awe to them. If you look at city government buildings or cities and how people design cities over the last hundred years, it was about sort of framing the human's relationship to something bigger than themselves. It's almost in a way like old religious architecture, right? The biggest building in the, in the city in medieval times was the church spire. So I think as we evolve in that space, I think a big piece of that for, for our generation and for the generations that are following us is real estate and physical buildings that that allow us to feel more at, at one and engaged with with them in in a way that meets them as peers as opposed to things that are bigger than us. And so I think we spend a lot of time in our business figuring out how to make real estate more accessible and make it more comfortable and more inclusive. And so placemaking is a word that's often overused, but I think in that regard, that's the tool that people default to. And that can be something as simple as wayfinding and signage, or it can be much more complex, like multi-layers of living and, and, and hospitality and food and beverage and, and fitness and health and wellness all layered into one space. Great cities and neighborhoods have that embedded in their urban planning and master planning mechanisms. Oftentimes, when you design a single purpose or single sector product, you're missing some piece of that. And hopefully, you've co-located in a place that that exists. But if it doesn't, you need to create sort of the whole ecosystem. So many of our listeners, I'm sure, have been inside of some of the assets that you've, you've redeveloped or repurposed. Maybe walk us through, you know, some of the more iconic ones. We can start with Chelsea Market or wherever you would like. And let's kind of try to understand the evolution of, you know, how how these projects came to be. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack, but let's let's start at the the highest level. Sure. Well, I, I guess you could you start with Chelsea Market. It started its life really as a series of industrial buildings that had a variety of different uses and then was original that then was sewn together by the Nabisco baking company to become the home of their products and obviously the birthplace of the Oreo cookie. But it was co- it was a building that was located on the High Line, which at the time is what brought livestock into Manhattan's meatpacking district. And so as it accelerated in its life and those uses became out of date, it became mostly warehouse storage and empty buildings. And then the repurposing of that space was really about creating a response to the fact that the broader neighborhood was not particularly safe and people wanted to go inside something to have an engagement experience. And originally it was wholesale businesses with windows that open up to a concourse. And the concourse is where the rail bed originally went between the row of buildings. And then later became a food hall and became a food sort of centric destination and then became aligned with the Food Network and New York One and Major League Baseball Advanced Media and YouTube and Google and all the sort of upper innovation floor tenants that co-located because of the ground plane activity. 
And then in its life today is associated with food impact and nutrition and health and wellness as another layer. So, you know, the market as a building has housed a lot of different purposes, but but it's always sort of stayed true in that kind of core sense of of food related ideals as a part of as a big part of its underpinning. And what was your role in the role of Jamestown in the redevelopment or repositioning of Chelsea Market? Sure. So we, we've been involved with Chelsea Market since 2003, and we, we didn't originate the conversion, but we took it from its sort of it, from its beginnings and built out a much more food-focused culture, a much more impact-focused culture, and evolved the upper floors from industrial uses to, to office and innovation uses. And we did that in the construct of also owning 111.8, which is the Port Authority building to the east of us, which is 2.9 million square feet. And then Milk Studios, which is to the west, southwest of us, which is was a media tech building as well. And ultimately, those three buildings became the core campus of Google New York. And Google originally came to us at 111.8 with 30 employees and was, it was a, a company that, that, you would, that really had no real clear credit rating or, or history. It was, it was in its infancy and clearly now is, is a big part of the west side of Manhattan in terms of an employer and, and obviously an impact globally. That's fascinating. Well, we'll come, we'll come back to the, uh, what attracts people to the right office assets as we move through the conversation. In addition to Chelsea, what are some of the other, you know, iconic assets that, you know, you've been a part of and that Jamestown has, has helped to shape that you're particularly proud of? Sure. So Ghirardelli Square, which you may be familiar with, on City Market in Atlanta, the Innovation and Design Building in Boston, Industry City in Brooklyn, the, the Groot Handelskabau building in Rotterdam, the Factor I building in Amsterdam, Innovation District in Lisbon, which has also the, the IDB building and the factory building in Lisbon. So a variety of kind of, of buildings that have similar characteristics and serve similar purposes in terms of being innovative and a bit disruptive in their markets and all kind of connected to this DNA of creating an aspirational place that, that helps companies attract and retain the, the best and brightest workforce. So, you know, I've been to to several of them, but not all of them. And, it, you know, if we use Chelsea Market as an example, you mentioned, you know, kind of the historical use, by the way, I had no idea it was the home of the Oreo cookie. So that's a great, I love fun fact. So I've got another one. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the, it's not clear to the world that these kind of underutilized assets can be repurposed or revitalized to literally change neighborhoods. So when you are, you know, looking at the canvas of a city and you're looking at these assets that have, you know, maybe uh, kind of had their peaks and are in a trough and you see opportunity where other people may see distress or ugliness. I mean, how do you kind of think about what makes, what are the bones, what makes a great, you know, reuse or redevelopment project? How do you identify, you know, where you want to spend your time and what you want to invest into? Well, there's obviously physical characteristics of the real estate and, and that can happen in, in, you know, early 20th century buildings or 19th century buildings or can happen in, in mid-century brutalist architecture as well. Or, and, and in some cases, in 80s and 90s sort of office buildings and sort of repurposed real estate that, that is undergoing its new kind of genesis. So I think on some level, 
The characteristics of it are good bones to start with. I think either a great location or a or a very unexpected location. So I don't think it always needs to be Maine and Maine or the most central. I think it can be in many regards the most remote. But I think what the the kind of basic premise is what what are the characteristics that people can become invested in? And so I think that you know, that is, it's a little bit, again, subjective. It's in the eye of the beholder, right? And so I wouldn't say there's any one component. I would say bigger is better. We, you know, we like buildings that are, you know, a million square feet or more or, or three quarters of a million square feet. They're hard to find, but creating an ecosystem that kind of services a variety of, of sectors requires that much space generally. And so, also to create the, the level of, of revenue that supports in-house teams that can be dedicated to what they're doing. So what is, when, you, when you find one of these assets or you're brought into a project, do you like to kind of bring the, build that ecosystem that you just mentioned where, you know, you can curate and craft it? Or do you prefer to have, you know, kind of an anchor tenant who wants to lead and let them kind of determine what the ecosystem, what's your approach to, you know, the mix of occupants inside of the building across the different uses? How do you think about that? I think it can be either or, really. I think there's no sort of one size fits all. I do think that the belief or the adage that that build it and they will come is really kind of true. I don't know that people have forward-looking vision generally around real estate. They, they typically have sort of a backward-looking vision about what they know and understand and what works. If you say to somebody, it's like this and it's something that exists, they can understand it. But if it's something that you can't provide a clear reference to, I think you've got to create it in order for them to, to see it. And I also think that buildings reveal themselves as you as you as you uncover kind of what they're about, particularly old buildings. In a ground up project where you design from scratch, you can be very intentional. But one of the great things about old buildings is they, they give you gifts that you don't expect. And both good and bad, but but in many cases, bad, more often than not, they create a cultural reference point or an architectural reference point that sort of guides you in a direction. Can you can you think of an example from one of your projects where you know you were you were given a gift maybe maybe a, a good gift and a bad gift just uh, to give our listeners the diversity perspective? Sure, I mean I would say Pond City Market in Atlanta. We we uncovered a piece of the building that had an original rail spur that came through it, and the gift that that was embedded in there was an incredible riveted structure that was that was a hundred years old and became a really interesting engagement point. On the negative side, would say we also found a portion of the building that had been altered greatly, and the way they fixed it was through a series of, of micro-columns that created really inaccessible space. And we had to figure out how to manage those because it, it, didn't, it, it didn't make sense to, to remove them. So, you know, it created character, on one level, but it also created challenges on another, right? So maybe that's a good example. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. So let's talk about, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, places that people want to interact with. And obviously, you know, the the, the assets themselves are super complex, you know, a lot of different layers and, and uses. You know, if we look at Chelsea Market, just as one example, and the relationship that Jamestown has had with Google, you mentioned it started, you know, when the company was quite small. 
But as we zoom out and look at the macro environment today where, you know, the office market is under, you know, some distress, how do you think about kind of the future of office and the types of offices that companies are going to want to gravitate towards so that they can, you know, leverage the the benefits of being together? I mean, what's your, you know, obviously office is the the kind of the the billion or trillion dollar question right now with the backdrop of the economy and you know, you obviously operate some of the most kind of differentiated and iconic assets out there. So how do you think about this dynamic? Yeah, I think that's a really complicated kind of answer because clearly it's easy to say that the office space that people want to be in is an office space that's collaborative and accessible and well amenitized and and that people can feel as good about being themselves as they feel being in their own homes. The, the actual expression of what that is, is, in, is counter to much of the product that's out in the market. And I think that, you know, in many ways, it's, you know, it's challenging to have lobbies with lots of security and protocols you have to get through. You only have to go to a New York office building pre-pandemic and see 23 food delivery guys queuing up to get their credentials or get notified people about food to know that that system doesn't really work with the workforce today. You know, in addition, I think we thought going into the sort of early 2000s that a lot of benching and going from a much more heavy sort of private office kind of layout to a more publicly shared layout was the answer to efficiency, but also to collaboration. But I think in reality, you know, if you look at law firms of the 1990s, you know, who set the standard at 350 or 400 square feet per person and fast forward to tech companies at 130 square feet per person. The reality is somewhere in that 250 to 300 feet or two, two to 300 feet. And, and how you use that space becomes really important. And so democratization of light and air, the, the having great casual spaces to, to connect with one another with sofas and chairs and kitchens and things that, that people feel like is not just sort of head down at your desk, but also having heads down space that people can feel like, like they can get away. And I think as, as this sort of shared sort of model starts to evolve of flexibility in the office and flexibility at home, I think both those environments have to change. I don't know, you know how many times I've gotten on a Zoom call in the last three years and I've seen someone's unmade bed. And I think, what... You would never accept that as a cultural, you know, kind of experience prior to that. But you wouldn't come into the office with dirty clothes. Why would you have a Zoom call with your unmade bed in the background? And so as we start to, to evolve in those spaces, I think the innovation will, will lead us. And I think that office buildings, much of the office building stock that's out there, isn't really compatible in its current form to the kinds of collaboration spaces and the kinds of spaces that inspire the workforce to, to engage with them. And I think that's our job, you know, all of us in the real estate space to, to listen to that and to make adjustments. It's interesting you say that. I mean, it, that's a problem, 
is it not? I mean, when you you pick your statistic, whether it's because of regulation or sustainability or just not conducive to the way the workforce wants, a large portion of the office stock is, you know, functionally obsolete, another buzzword. But what what happens to these assets? I mean, what do we do? You know, how do cities evolve when you've got office buildings that nobody wants to work in? Or is it just a race to the bottom where if you lower rents enough, somebody's going to take it and figure out what to do? Well, I think it's sort of some of both, right? I mean, I think we knew that East Midtown in New York City was largely obsolete 15 years ago when they started talking about rezoning East Midtown. And the one building that you really see as a shining example of that is one Vanderbilt, right? It, it is, it's achieved a full lease up during the pandemic at the highest rates in the city, and it's in great demand. And so I think there is on some level a replacement strategy, right, where, where there are some buildings that need to be replaced with new, innovative, ESG-compliant kind of workspaces. And then there's another group of buildings that will become more interesting because they'll become more affordable and because people have, will curate a tenant base that creates an ecosystem that people like. Because the other thing that is true is that people co-locate where there are other people that they want to be with, whether it's people in the professional services industry or people in the creative industries or people in the in the tech industry. So so in some regards that space becomes secondary if the driving, you know, the driving purpose of that of that is collaboration versus heads down work. And so I, I do think that, you know, that there'll be a variety of outcomes in that regard. I'm not sure that I believe in all obsolescence in that space. And I think certainly where we see demand and, and, and absorption is either in really great, highly amenitized spaces that are, that are quirky and a little off center, and then spaces that are truly cutting edge ESG compliant new construction. And so I think, What's in the middle is the thing that needs to figure itself out. And unfortunately, I'm not sure our industry, I think the real estate industry is sort of the slowest to adapt to change in technology. And I think we saw this in the prop tech space, which has been emerging, right? And we see it in the, in the, in the fintech space, which, is, which has been great. But I think we, what we need is a wholesale commitment to test and iterate and innovate and to, to, to continue to kind of evolve the system. What, I mean, what's stopping that from happening? I mean, because I agree with you. I mean, I think that the change is painfully slow. I think some of it is just some people just, they, they, it's been easy for too long, right? It's like, it's, some of it, it's very formulaic. And when the formula works, it works very well. And you don't really realize it's not working until something like what just occurred. And you say, okay, well, gosh, we need to change the formula. But maybe the formula becomes the thing we just talked about, which is a lot more engaged and a lot more dynamic than just, you know, a simple, a simple, you know, finance build and lease strategy. Yeah. I mean, one thing you said struck me, which is, you know, the, the one Vanderbilt often is referenced as kind of the, the pinnacle of, of great modern new office. And, and, and obviously, you know, its performance justifies that. But you said something about how people want to gather together with, you know, communities that they want to be a part of. And when I hear that, I think about, you know, transcending the office building to the broader kind of neighborhood level. Is that what you're referring to when you? you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, 
that's why I think, you know, multiple things can be true at once. You can have a really bad building that's really well located and it will lease. And you can have a, you can have, and, and I think where we started this around kind of place and around community, the workforce increasingly is aware of the pressures on society and on the ecology that we live in. And I think we have to, we have to provide an added return for the experience and the dollars that they're paying for. So whether that's impact programs, community uplift, beautification, ESG, all of these things are very important increasingly to the workforce. And that at one time was something you did in your community in a suburban place outside the workplace. You did it in your church or in your school, in the children's schools or whatever those were solely. But increasingly, the workforce wants to hold the, the workplace. And in some regards, the third space that's between the two, accountable for their share of that. And so the more our industry leans into that and, and actually, in a way that's truly meaningful, makes a difference, I think will resonate with people wanting to be occupiers in these buildings. So a few more questions on this, and then we'll move on to, to the next topic. But, you know... Right now, you hear this against the backdrop of the macro and we have inflation and are we in a recession or not? We don't need to necessarily pontificate on that because I think the answer is nobody really knows. But one of the things that I've been hearing is that, you know, the pendulum has shifted from the employees back to the employers and you have groups, you have some large banks saying, you know, everybody needs to be back in the office every day or you're out. But what you're saying or what I think I heard you say is that, you know, Really, we need to adapt to the workforce versus tell the workforce what to do. Kind of what's the dynamic or where do you kind of sit on this continuum of, you know, you've got some people who have unmade beds at home who, you know, may not be working very hard. And you've got some employers who, you know, are throwing down the hammer saying you've got to be in the office or you're out of here. How does this thing kind of shake out over the next, call it three years? Sure. I mean, I think, again, multiple things can be true at once. I, I, I think that fundamentally we're going to find, and I think coming out of COVID, I think we have found a real stress to the common commitment to the enterprise in which people are engaged. And I think that that is really sort of for the first time, maybe since the late 60s or early 70s. And I think that Part of that is this remoteness from the reason they're working or the reason that they have economic stability. And so I think we need to tie that back together in some regards. I think that does mean being more in person. I think we've all found that things that we struggled to figure out on Zoom calls for a year get figured out in a matter of days or weeks or hours when you're in person with one another. So there's definitely an efficiency. But on the other hand, there's an efficiency of the fact that we're having this interview and call fully remotely. So I think, I think both things can be true. So I think both the workforce needs to be aware. And I think you have seen companies go through rounds of layoffs. And I think you can draw your own conclusion about how many of those people were, were in the office, partially in the office or fully remote. And I think it is different for each one. But I think the the thing that is true is that the people that that excel are people who are seen and are 
are getting FaceTime, whether in one way or another, and are getting mentorship and advancing kind of in their careers. And the businesses that succeed are ones that increase their market share and continue to manage margins and all those things. So they're not at odds with one another. I just think we need to figure out the operating model going forward. I do think the other big existential threat to the workforce is this sort of globalization. We saw it happen with NAFTA in the 80s when we we sent all our job manufacturing jobs outside the United States. And I think now we have to worry about the same thing with finance jobs and tech jobs and all the things that are part of this of this economy that's um, increasingly becoming digital. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a... You know, and I don't know that there's an answer. I think I like your perspective that, you know, both things can be true. It's just... I get somewhat frustrated when I hear it, you know, when I hear the discussion focus on this very kind of binary, you're either in the office or you're fired. And I do think both things can be true. And, you know, one of the things I often reference is, you know, Juniper Square went fully remote when COVID started and we've managed to grow and scale. We won't know if it's perfect or not until we have the benefit of hindsight. But in order for us to go back to being a fully in-person company, we would need to reconstitute our entire workforce. And that will take years, not days or weeks. And so both things must be true. We can both be in the office and be remote or hybrid and be successful. And so, you know, I like the framing around the orientation with the the company or the the enterprise, if you will, that that that's paying people. If- yeah, I think the most important thing is the common that we all have whatever the common goal is that's laid out in a group of people that work together, that they align around it. And I think that it is important to see the health of the enterprise so the enterprise can be healthy and take care of its people. And there it's a it's a it's an interdependent relationship. Totally. Across your portfolio, you have some of the most innovative companies in in the world, literally technology, and we'll we'll talk about technology here next. But if you look in a broad brush, like what trends are you seeing, not with return to office, but you know, we talked about building community, great amenitization. Are there new things that are emerging as important today that may have not been important, you know, 18 or 36 months ago? Sure. I mean I think ESG is is like emerging in the US as one of one of the biggest priorities, obviously in Europe, it has been for a long time, you know, European investors tend to take a much longer view and a much more fulsome view of their infrastructure investment in the real estate versus American investors tend to think sort of five to seven year cycles and, and what does it mean to kind of solve the solution? I think we're starting to see those two things merge a bit. And I think that technology-driven physical real estate, I think, is emerging as a must-have for everyone. And whether that's tracking energy consumption or smart locks or or mater- the materiality of the space with cross-laminated timber or, or um, solutions in regards to, to, to being carbon neutral, all of those things are important. I think... We all know public transit is important. We all know the green space is important. But I think increasingly bike usage is everywhere in our portfolio. There's more and more demand for bike rooms and for for showers and and, and lockers and a variety of things in that regards in cities. But the number one thing for me that resonates is whether you still want to wear a suit to work or you want to come in, you know, performance athletic wear, there's a, there's a sense that you want the place to be 
more accessible and and interactive. And I think that means less structure. And so what that means and how it plays out, I think, is, is, is yet to be seen. Yeah. Yeah, I guess if I walk into Chelsea Market, there's no check-in desk, right? I can navigate my way to an elevator bank. And then what do I do? I have a key fob that takes me to where I need to go with... Either, you have a key fob or the, you have the security on the floors themselves and the elevators are free, free moving. And, you know, I know that the, the trend is destination elevators. I can't stand a destination What's elevator. A desti- What's a destination I, elevator? Where you go to a keypad and you hit your floor and it tells you to go to elevator, you know, 23E or whatever that is, and it takes you. I find that all very much a solution of sort of anonymous intent. It doesn't connect you to the physical real estate. And I think we need to we need to always in our business be reinforcing the human's connection to the physical place. And so Anyway, that's a bad riff, but that's no, that's. I, sort I, of I mean, I, I'll I'll follow your lead there. I mean, one of my biggest pet peeves to office landlords is, especially in New York, where I just was yesterday. You walk in, and you know, I'm here to see so and so on X Y Z company, and the person sitting behind the security desk looks at you deadpan. If you're that lucky, usually they scowl or don't pay attention. And so, my very first interaction in most office buildings in major cities is negative. It's someone who doesn't like their job. They're don't want to be there. And I feel like I'm an outsider trying to like penetrate this, you know, this, this, this fortress and it's terrible. And, you know, usually by the time you get upstairs and you get to the reception desk, there's somebody pleasant to greet you, but that's not the experience downstairs on ground level. And it pisses me off. Well, that's an office environment of intimidation, which has been the intent of landlords for a long time and companies that co-locate there. It's all designed to make the human feel like an interloper, not like they belong versus if you can, if I send you a calendar invite to come to a meeting in my office and it sends your credentialization, you can walk through with, with, you know, biometrics or, or facial recognition. And there's, it's just frictionless. You're going to feel really good and feel like you belong and that you were actually invited to be in that building. And, you know, I think that that sense of, of belonging and of inclusion is what I think we need to spend a lot more time on. Yeah. Even more so if I can grab a great coffee before I head up to see you. Exactly. Exactly. Let's talk about technology. You mentioned ESG. I want to, maybe let's start there and then let's move. You know, we'll take it all the way from ESG to the metaverse in a few minutes. But I think of Jamestown as one of the most leading and innovative companies when it comes to ESG. I th- I'm thinking of your timber timber project that you're working on. Maybe let's start with that. Explain to our listeners kind of what that is and how, how it came to be. And then let's talk a little bit more broadly about how you're thinking about ESG across your portfolio. Sure. So we created a, a sustainability group in 2008 and really very early in the in the the U.S. kind of awareness around really being focused on how to turn levers in the buildings, both for for cost mitigation and savings for the tenants, but also for to enhance returns for the investors. And the most recent thing that we've done, which was which was really through necessity, is wanted to design a, a cross laminated timber office building, which for many reasons is you know much more carbon efficient, is much more in line with the kind of desirability of the workforce. But what we found is that in a market like Atlanta, with Georgia Pacific headquartered there, 
that it was still cheaper to buy the, the cross-laminated timber from Eastern Europe or from the Pacific Northwest than to get it from a locally sourced solution. So we happen to have timber funds, and in those timber funds, we have FSG-certified timber. And so we created an end-to-end solution of timber we grow going to a cross-laminated timber plant within 100 miles of the, of the trees and then coming to the building. So all within 200 miles, we've sourced and erected a building from the same material. And that we find as we think out looking forward in, in regards to this desire to innovate in new buildings, right? And, and that, that the workforce, what we just said in a moment ago, is that the very cutting edge, carbon neutral, you know, technology driven solution office buildings a winner. How do we build more of those and build them in a way that fits a variety of different sizes and, and infill sites? And so this was the first kind of process in that. And it actually just leads to it, 50% of it leads to an anchor tenant, which is financial services, which is, you know, kind of in line with, with companies that value those things. So I think it's, we're feeling optimistic about that. So the assets in Georgia, the timber, you said, did you end up with timber in the state of Georgia or? We did. We grew from, from actually from Alabama across the, the state line. But and, and you're, within you're, 200 growing, you're growing, that's, that's your timber land that you're growing. The timber it's land. our timber land, which is, which we got certified for, you know, FSG certified, which is the best, you know, certification for cross laminated timber. It's Southern yellow pine. So it is, it is a very renewable resource. And we worked with Georgia Pacific to pilot this so that it could be used by others. And from our standpoint, we have no pride of authorship here. We want as many people to engage in that solution as possible because it just makes the world a better place and continues to reinforce aspirational workplaces that people want to be in. So when did you think about buying the timber? Like, which came first, the timberland or the idea for the timber building? Because not everybody has, you know, timberland. I guess they can come to you and, and buy some from you all if you have extra. But how does that process? Well, we have timber funds, which we started really in 2010 for an, for a an alternative investment strategy in, in a renewable resource that was, you know, adjacent to real estate. And so... As we started following trends, we started looking for solutions for, for net carbon zero and, and efficiency in terms of how you build buildings and tying together a solution on our timber tracks that are close to our, 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 our project in Atlanta was the first solution. There's certainly, as we look at other projects, like we have a significant project in Charleston, South Carolina, which is an old baby base that's going to have over... 2 million square feet of new construction. And if you look at steel challenges and procurement around the world today and costs to be able to, to locally source a timber solution that, that stands up in many regards better than steel is, is appealing. So, so it, the timber predated the, the cross-laminated timber office building, but I think the industry was, was is still quite young in the U.S., much more advanced in Canada and in and Europe. So, because I don't know that much about this, indulge me. So, what are the stats on this particular asset in in Atlanta? And then, you know, maybe speak to like 
from a structural perspective, are there any different kind of constraints or challenges that you have in terms of, you know, scale when you're working with timber versus traditional materials? Sure. So, so this is a, a 200,000 square foot office building that's an infill site at Pond City Market, which is, as you know, is a, is a roughly 2 million square foot, 16 acre site. And we're in the process of, a, of sort of three different buildings being erected in a, in a 700,000 square foot sort of second phase of this project. The Depending on the jurisdiction, you can go sort of 12 stories, and in some regards, some jurisdictions allow you to go higher. It is the the burn point of cross-laminated timber. I'm not going to quote you the statistics, but the melt point of steel is lower than the burn rate of cross-laminated timber. So so the density of the product and the, and the fire retardancy was the thing that most people were afraid of. There's some some distinct differences between a steel building or a concrete building and, and cross-laminated timber. But one of the key functions is that the, the structure can become the finished ceiling and floor, which creates a real an efficiency both material from a material standpoint, but also is in line with kind of creating character that people find is interesting and alternative to classic sheetrock walls and, and lay-in ceilings and office buildings. Fascinating. And and you believe that the tenant that you just signed, the building came before the tenant, so it wasn't a build to sue. It was built basically on spec and you found a tenant. How do, how do the rents, you know, compare, you know, to, to market rents? Are you able to get a premium for a product like this or is it just expediency of, of, of lease up? We are able to get a premium, typically cross-laminated timber buildings command a, pre- a premium depending on the market, but certainly, and what works, what's great about it is that it's in a highly amenitized, you know, mixed use project, which also allows for a premium. Last question on this, and then we'll move to the broader definition of technology. You mentioned, and I completely agree, and we've had a lot of guests on the podcast talking about ESG and how much further ahead the Europeans are than the the Americans. What What's your take on you know, the, this reaction that, you know, if I want to have more sustainable assets, you know, my bottom line is going to be sacrificed or impacted negatively. Do you, you know, is there any truth to that? If you're, you know, if you're speaking to a peer who I want to do it, but my investors won't let me because it's going to impact my returns. How do you think about that objection? You know, I think I would say that's probably why we have so many buildings that are going to be empty. That thinking is sort of embedded in its old its old line thinking. I think that there was a time that it was a nice to have as long as it doesn't cost more. But on the other hand, it, if the workforce wants it, and the companies that are occupying the space are focused on you know lead certification for their interior builds and 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 net carbon zero in their in their own company consumptions, there's no way to to not to acknowledge the fact that it is enhancing a bottom line somewhere down the down the path. In Europe, there is a penalty that you that you pay upon sale of a building that's not compliant, either by creating escrows for them to make it compliant or through just discounts. And in the US, I think in the next cycle, particularly as we see climate change issues becoming more of an issue, I think you're going to see that that 
premium for having it will continue to grow and the and the penalty either through a higher cap rate or less of a bidder pool or less of a finance pool to finance the buildings, I, I think you're going to see that grow. And I would also ask, what are we here for if not to create the best product? And, you know, I think we, we clearly are seeing the tenants have a lot of choice. And so from my standpoint, I, I think it's, it's just antiquated thinking. I agree. Let's talk about the metaverse. I don't know that there's a good transition or segue, but you know, one of the things that I know you and I have talked about and that you're particularly known for is some of the innovative work that you've done to bridge kind of the physical assets that you own with kind of this virtual experience. I don't want to try to put words into your mouth. So maybe just start with like first principles. What are you doing vis-a-vis technology and the metaverse and why are you playing in this space as a, I won't call you a traditional real estate company, but for those that know you as a traditional bricks and mortar real estate company, what's driving you to go beyond the boundaries of bricks and mortar and the physical environment that we can walk in and touch? So I think as we think about Web 3.0 and what it means, like today, AI is the hot topic for everyone, right? Last year, it was the metaverse. The year before that, it was blockchain. they all relate to one another. And it's how, in, in, in our thinking, it's how are you connecting with the, the customer or the client and how are you building a better network of touch points? And so, and I think there's a piece of that that's about expediency of transaction and about, about security of transaction. But at a baseline, I think, and I would say tokenization and tokenomics and that that dynamic that is now out of vogue because what we saw happen in the crypto space last year is still quietly being employed in many ways. And so starting with the metaverse, I think that the way we think about it is presenting our product, which is real estate, in the most fulsome way that can attack, that, that can can reach the widest audience is important. And many of the things that we do are either iconic in their cities or iconic in the US. And to be able to provide access to a pool of people that that a traditional website doesn't do the same thing for, or in, in this regard, the the translation of materials and an experience that is different than what they can get physically seems like a natural fit, right? And so during, uh, you know, 2000, between 2019 and 2022, I think you've heard me say this, we took viewership on New Year's Eve from 150 million to 300 million. A big piece of that was other cities shutting down, but a huge piece of that was was virtual experiences, metaverse streaming, and multi-language. And so as we start to think about how this takes its place in the world of the built environment, it it just seems like a tool that we need to all be employing. And the more adoption there is, the more regulation there'll be, the more clarity there'll be, the more affordability there'll be. And so like many of these things, I think it's it's important that we lean in in ways we can test and iterate. And I, I certainly would say this to you at Juniper Square, before your solution, there wasn't, you know, a lot of people who talked about it, right? But there, but you were the people who actually provided the solution. And your solution is only 
ultimately the best it can be from, through wide-scale adoption and allowing you to continue to, to iterate and improve the product. And so I think that, that it's the same in all new technologies. Yeah. And so, I mean, with, with that, you know, the example that you gave about one Times Square New Year's Eve, I think for our listeners who aren't aware, Jamestown owns one Times Square, right? Where the ball drops on New Year's Eve. Yeah, we produce New Year's Eve with Times Square Alliance in the city of New York and have done for 27 years. And so we are officially the, you know, we're, we're the, the engine behind creating that experience. And, and so tools like the metaverse are really, are, are really valuable. And, it's, and, it, it, and I would say anyone who is digitally native, and let's say there's two digitally native cohorts in the workforce today and a third rapidly coming behind, they all understand tokenomics and gamification. They grew up engaging that way. They, they have gotten goods and services that way. We, our generation, uses airline points and credit card miles, and then we say we don't understand crypto. It's, it's, the, same, it's the same thing, but, but used in a different way. And so I think as we think about tools to engage a, a cohort of people that just simply learn and absorb information in a different way, the metaverse is really valuable. And what's the benefit or is there a benefit for your, your tenants? I mean, how, you know, what are, what are the, you expand your viewership or your engagement, but how does that impact bringing it back to the physical real estate? Sure. So if you're a retailer and you, you sell, you know, clothing and you're a local retailer who kind of designs and, and, and makes clothing, the ability to present those goods and have an avatar try on the clothes. If, you know, if your customer has an avatar that fits their sizes and they can look and, and see how it fits, your return rate is much less than, than traditional kind of online ordering. But also, you may have access to a customer who would have never known about you in a city like LA or Atlanta because they live in Copenhagen or in, 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 in Helsinki. And, and how you create that virtual connection to someone is, is what the metaverse is designed to do. And right now, you, many people see it in a non-photorealistic sort of way, very much a gamified sort of landscape of fanciful icons. But the more it evolves, the more it will become, you know, a much more photorealistic experience. And we see that with GBT and AI and BARD and like, you all of a sudden you put in four inputs and you get a rendering back at the space and you think, wow, it's that fast. And so I think it's rapidly adopting this culture that's going to really kind of help us navigate. And I've heard you talk about this concept of like a digital twin. How, like, explain, explain for our listeners, what, what, is, what is this concept? How would you explain it to the layperson? Well, so in a, in a sort of building services model, if you create a digital twin of your real estate, your energy consumption and monitoring and levers you can pull about traffic flow and about heat loads and about energy consumption are much easier to manage. And the way you can communicate that out to either in a, in a virtual way to people that are, that are remote in other cities or other service providers or IT providers, it's a, it's a very useful tool. And so... I think as we think about what are the levers we can pull to make a more efficient 
spine to our lives so that we can have more time to enjoy the things that are analog and truly amazing, like, you know, recreating and being in parks and playing with our kids and all the things that we value are things that we as companies need to, to, to be investing in. You, you mentioned AI and chat GPT and, you know, the other buzzwords. What, what do you think kind of goes away, if anything, or what do you think changes most materially as a result of, you know, the massive advances in technology that we're seeing here, like literally on a day by day or week by week basis? Yeah, look, I think that's, you know, that's a double-edged sword and I won't go too deeply into that. But I think that as we experiment, and many of us are experimenting with how AI can either be a tool in our lives or can can help us have access to tools in our lives, I think we're learning how powerful it is as a tool. I think it's also brings with that a lot of threats and it needs to be regulated and, and managed. but. But I think it's whether it's, you know, prescriptive analytics and data around kind of human trends and what people do, or it's something as simple as, as a realist, residential real estate broker being able to show you a rendering of what you would like to do with a house when you say, I'm interested in this. And then within 30 seconds, you can show them a picture that looks, you know, 90% close to their vision. There, there's a lot of sort of high and low tools that AI will, will present for us. And I think as well as diagnostics and medical solutions, you know, I, I think the integration of AI in the metaverse is a really a powerful tool for, for medical diagnostics as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think the, I, I, my head is spinning trying to figure out the implications of all of this. So I feel like I'm grasping at straws. It's, exciting and terrifying at the same time. We're, we're almost out of time, but one of the things that I just want to end on is, you know, what, maybe this is just my view, but I think of you in particular and Jamestown as being very progressive and not afraid to kind of buck the norms and the status quo and innovate. And I also think of our industry largely being afraid to do that. And so there's this, this contrast here. What advice would you give to people listening, whether they're at the beginning of their careers or, you know, other, you know, tenured executives like yourself, if you kind of, if any of this is resonating with them, if they're like, yes, this is interesting, but how, or I don't understand, or it's not possible. How do, how do we kind of get started and create this inertia for people to begin to innovate the way that you're thinking about innovation? Well, so, you know, what? what's interesting to me is I'm always astounded at how disconnected people's recreation lives are from their professional lives. Say more, say more about that. What I'd really like people to think about, where do they go eat? Like, I believe that human beings actually only go to five restaurants. You know, there may be the odd, you know, the outlier who's like a foodie who's going to everything. But if you really look at the rhythm of your life, you, you, it's a pretty well-worn path, right? And I think we need more real estate executives to look honestly at how they're living their lives, not aspirationally at the life they wish they had. Because the reality is it's a much more casual world. It's a much more engaged world. It's a much more interdependent world. And I think if we create spaces that 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 reflect that, just like you saying, God, I got off a plane, I went to a building in Midtown Manhattan and I got scowled at and I was uncomfortable. I didn't want to be there. Like 
90% of the workforce feels the same way. So how do we remove that? How do we create a place that, how does our industry lean into, you know, the tools that our kids are using, the, 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 the trends that are happening as opposed to turning our backs on it and, and creating places that aren't for people, which is, you know, and largely our, our industry is, is doing that in many positive ways. But I guess I would just start there is be more reflective about your own choices when you're not at work. And I think you'll find that the space you create when you're back at work will look a lot different. I love that. I think that's a perfect place to wrap up our conversation today. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's great chatting with you and hearing all the innovative stuff that you all are doing. And you know, thanks again for, for sharing the insights with us and our listeners. Yep. Thank you, Brandon. Good to see you again. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you like today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash B Sedloff. Or you can find me on Twitter at B Sedloff. You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at juniperquare.com forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time.